0: Oh, so we are in Luke 7 uh, as a congregation in Lodi in Stockton. We've been uh, in uh, Luke for almost two years. And uh, specifically, there's a passage in the scripture uh, that we're going to cover today that has impacted me almost on a daily basis. And so it's just an honor to share that with you. We're going to be looking at verse 36 to 50 specifically. What I'll do is I'll go ahead and read it uh, and then we'll pray. Uh, verse 36 Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, well, say it, teacher. And so Jesus said, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, Which of them will love him more? Simon answered the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from time to time, or from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loves much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace, or literally, go into peace. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to this majestic section of this gospel. And God, I pray that by your spirit, you would, uh, you would teach and equip your saints this morning for the work of the ministry. I pray that you would search us. I pray that you would know if there be anything hidden or right out there in the open, but that you would be jealous for your bride this morning, that you would not let her love go to lesser things. So, Lord, I pray that you would go after our affections, that you would go after our hearts, and that, Lord, uh, you would so uh, put before us and display your love uh, that we'd be undone by it. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray for power, along with the saints, to comprehend the height, the width, the breadth, and the depth of the love of God, our Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do it for your glory and for the salvation of these coastlands. Thank you, Jesus, be on display now, please, in Jesus' name, amen. By way of introduction, as, as we'll see in Luke's narrative, there's something that he does on a consistent basis in his gospel. And so by way of introduction, I'm going to uh, read a little section from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Because from time to time in scripture, we get some insight, and something happens, uh, and specifically, something happens in chapter 17. And it would happen when a prophet is preaching and a prophet is one who spoke uh, for God, proclaiming God's truth, uh, God's word inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we find Jeremiah in this passage as he's proclaiming God's truth, as he's talking to Judah, calling them to repentance, his heart from what he's saying begins to be melted and begins to change. And so he's going to liken uh, that nation to either one of two people, one of two trees, one of two groups, and he's going to say, "Find out who you are in this group." In verse five, he says, "Thus says the Lord: Cursed is the man who trusts in man, and makes flesh his strength; whose heart turns away from the Lord." And he's going to describe what this group is like. He is like a shrub in the desert, and he's going to explain a very dire condition. And he shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in a parched place of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So it gets pretty dreary there. Uh, Not only is it a desert, not only is he a shrub, not only is there a drought, but it's also a salted land. Then he says in verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots into the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease To bear fruit. And so he goes into this beautiful thing. And I think that Jeremiah is thinking, well, I'm a prophet. God called me when I was a youth, as we see in chapter 1. And I've been speaking for the Lord. And so I'm definitely, if I'm in a category, I'm definitely in the green tree category. I'm definitely by the river. That's me. But as he goes on to preach, we see that his heart begins to uh, search itself. Uh, Because we see that in verse 14. But let me read, keep reading. In verse 9 he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it and to make matters worse as his words begin to sink into his own soul? Verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And he keeps preaching for a little bit, but I think as those things are going, more and more as he's likening and looking at his life, looking at the motivations for why he does what he does, he realizes maybe he's not so much the tree as consistent as he thinks. Maybe more that shrub in the desert begins to identify him because in verse 14 he cries out, he stops preaching, and it's now him and the Lord, and he says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me. And I shall be saved, for you are my praise. He realizes what I need is I need to be planted, and only God can take me up from the desert and plant me in that uh, stream next to that river so that I might bear fruit. And so often, Luke, uh, as his goal in his narrative, is on a consistent basis to introduce us to two characters or to two groups. And what's interesting is often we find that those moral insiders or those who think they're on the inside with Jesus or the Messiah, the the people who go to church every week, the people who make sure that they tithe and they give regularly, the the people who uh, haven't done the crazy sins but have kept themselves... Often, time and time again, as these two stories, these two groups, these two lives are contrasted, the the moral uh, insiders find themselves on the outside, and a relationship with God. And often, the outsider, the moral outcast, the disenfranchised, the the group and the class of sinners, which included tax collectors and prostitutes and those suffering with diseases that made them unclean. There were racial outcasts because of their ethnicity. There were all these different kinds of outcasts. And those who found them on the outside, those who were on the out, Jesus often through the story brings them In, And so you see that even as Jesus heals the lame man, as his friends bring him there in Luke chapter 5, and you have him rejoicing that his sins are forgiven, leaping for joy, he's been healed. Well, the religious grumble and complain. You have, as Jesus is choosing uh, his disciples, he calls to Levi, who is a tax collector, in the midst of a group of fresh-out-of-Bible-College Pharisees, what behind their ears, but the cream of the crop. If you want anybody to follow you who knows their stuff, it's this. And yet Jesus, in choosing this teacher, this rabbi, somebody to follow him, he goes to a tax collector and calls them to follow him. You see it with the Good Samaritan, where the hero of the story is the hated enemy, the Samaritan, while those who were supposed to help the priest and the Levite pass by, Without lifting a hand, you see it in the Prodigal Sons, the younger brother who uh, comes back home, where the older brother is outside the house, as the father even pleads with him to come back in. You see it with the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man in riches thought to be just that blessing from the Lord, that automatic you're in, you're going to heaven. He's blessed you so much, and Lazarus, the poor beggar who is laid daily, or literally, the word is tossed at the rich man's gate and let it yet at the end of the story one is in heaven and one is in hell the reversal you have the 10 lepers who one comes back who was a double outcast leprosy was 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 an outcast you were an outcast because it was an unclean disease and yet uh, the samaritan leper the double outcast comes back and and finds salvation as jesus says your faith has saved you We see it amazingly in Luke 18 with the Pharisee and the tax collector. And this story is so amazing because the Pharisee gets up and he's praying and he actually says, God, I thank you. It's you. You've done it that you've made me who I am, that I'm not like this person, this sinner, this this tax collector, but you've made me this way. I, I fast twice a week and you don't even call me to do that. And I do all this stuff for you. And the tax collector can't lift his eyes to heaven but beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Luke says, this man went home justified, right with God, and the other did not. Zacchaeus and the religious crowd. Religious crowd who'd been following Jesus to Jerusalem. And yet... When he wants to stop, he goes out of his way to a tree to, in our modern day understanding, a Nazi sympathizer. Tax collectors fueled the Roman war machine on the backs of the fellow countrymen. And Jesus says, I want to come, I want to come home. Salvation comes to the house and time and time again and before us this morning is another contrast, two groups, two people presented to us. And the question that Luke asks in his narrative time and time again, because what he wants is he wants us to choose. He doesn't want this neutral uh, ground. He wants us to decide what group am I in so that there can be healing and like the flow of a river where you come to a fork, you've got to go one or two ways. You can stay neutral for only so long, swimming against the current of this narrative, and you have to end up in one. And so I pray that the Lord would search and see who we are in the story this morning. And so we see there in verse 36, one of the Pharisees. Now, what that means, one of the Pharisees, is it means that he was part of a group that Luke had just been talking about. And we see him uh, as Jesus is preaching to a multitude of people, and it's a different mixture. There's tax collectors there, there's sinners, there's uh, people just kind of in their day-to-day lives, and there's Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders, and we'll get to that. And so here he is, and, and I think this Pharisee, he's not a villain. Uh, he's not, you know. We tend to hiss at the Pharisees when they come onto the page, and uh, but here he is. He genuinely wants to know. He's going to interview Jesus. Is, is Jesus really who he claims to be? I want him in my house. It's more like a Nicodemus thing. John chapter three going on here. I want to bring Jesus in. You know, some of my guy, man, some of my crew really hates this guy and is upset in what he's saying and doing. I I want to bring him in and and see what he's about. And Jesus, because he loves the uh, religious just as much as the irreligious, he comes, it says, and uh, so he went with the Pharisee uh, into his house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she comes onto the scene. Now, this woman, a woman of the city who was a sinner, and she was a prostitute. It's a good way of saying she was a prostitute, and she was notorious. Simon knows about her. Uh, She's uh, famous in the city for what she does. This is how she makes her livelihood. She sells her flesh uh, to have a roof over her head. Now, both of these characters are, uh, uh, this story picks up that they're responding to something. We see uh, the Pharisee responding to something and bringing Jesus into his house. And I believe that this woman is responding too. Because in verse 50, you have Jesus saying, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so there's something happening in her life. It's not that she, you know, did this act and then God grants her salvation. She's responded to something because when she hears Jesus is there, she makes a beeline and she's got to get to him. She's got to be with him, and so uh, I believe that it's uh, in the text. Uh, We back up to the part in chapter 7 where uh, John the baptizer is in prison, and uh, he's been in prison for a while because he spoke the truth. He stood up for what was right, and yet the captives aren't being set free in his mind. And so he takes and he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, ask him this question, are you really the Messiah? Are you the coming one or should we look for someone else? I mean, this is, this is John. This is the one who saw Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, the one who's not worthy to unloose his sandal, the one who heard the voice, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, but in this dark moment of doubt, he says, are you really the Messiah? And so Jesus takes the disciples and said, stand to the side, and he's going to show them the credentials of the Messiah with the with the prophets had prophesied the Messiah would be, and what he would do, and what he would accomplish. And so the blind received their sight, the lame walked, the lepers were cleansed, the deaf hear, even the dead were raised, and the poor had the gospel preached to them. And then he gave one last message and he said, please tell John and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Blessed is he who is not upset and offended by the way I do things, by the way I save, by the way I redeem. Blessed is he who trusts me that I'm good, that I'm sovereign, that I'm in control, that there's something bigger going on than me coming in and overthrowing Rome with military might and strength and setting up a physical throne. For I've come to overthrow the spiritual powers and principalities and to said the spiritual captives free. So he says, blessed is he who is not offended. And so the disciples leave and they go back. And, and Jesus said, and he begins to talk about how awesome John is. And he said, would you come out to see a reed shaken by the wind? He said, he didn't bow to popular opinion. He didn't care about what fad was going through or what you thought of him. He was going to tell you the truth. He was a life dedicated to me. I mean, here he is in camel hair and, and uh, eating locusts and honey. And I mean, he's back Baptized by the Holy Spirit from the mother's womb. I mean, he, he's, he's dedicated. And so he's preaching this. And he's saying no more life could be more dedicated. He says in verse 28, And I tell you among all those born of woman, women, None is greater than John. People who have come before. No one was more dedicated to the Lord's work. He wasn't given to the secular and, and the worldliness. He wasn't distracted by things he was dedicated and I can see the crowds and everybody's nodding and going yeah we see that that guy was gnarly and and we could see why Jesus loves him because he was a life so dedicated and consecrated so zealous for the glory of God and then Jesus says something that blows the crowd Away. They can't believe it. It, 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 it. it goes off like a bomb in their midst and has two very different reactions. He preaches the gospel to them. And in verse 28, he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What? The least? In the kingdom of God, the, the greatest moral failure, the The one who struggles all their life is greater than John the Baptist. How can that be? Greater than somebody who was so dedicated, who lived his life for God. How can that be? And I think in the crowd it began to click because notice verse 29 when all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. They say, It makes sense. It makes sense. Because baptism was such a picture to them. Up to that point, baptism had been self-administered. But all of a sudden, John comes on the scene pointing to what Jesus would do. And baptism came at somebody else's hand. And so all of a sudden, they begin to put the pieces together. And they realize, I can't save myself. I can't clean myself. But I need somebody else to do it. And the crowd begins to get it. And they begin to declare God just. Pharisees, that was not their reaction. Notice in verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected so heavy the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. They said, no, we are fine. We're good enough to to clean ourselves. What are you saying? You're saying that all my moral goodness, everything that I've done up to this point, that it's not enough to give me good standing before God, we, we reject that. It can't be that simple. It can't be that free. It can't be that easy. And they reject the purposes of God for them. I think that the woman was there. And I wonder what would run through the mind. And perhaps in that, the least in the kingdom hit her like a ton of bricks. Perhaps the stories that she grew up with as a little girl begin to flood her mind. Stories that she knew. Stories of Tamar and how God used her. Or even of Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, who God saved. Perhaps even the story of Gomer. As Hosea And God came to Hosea the prophet and said, I want you to marry a prostitute. And so he takes her in and makes him his wife. And they have kids and their last kid is literally named, not mine. And she goes back to prostitution. And we see in chapter 3 that she's been so used, so scarred. And now she's not good for selling her body so the best they can do is auction her off as a laborer or laborer and so there she is on the auction block and she hears a familiar voice and it's her husband and he says oh i'll take you back i'll buy you back and he brings her back in to His home. So I wonder, this wrestling in her was their hope—the least in the kingdom, the least in the kingdom—that would surely be me. But then other scriptures would surely flood her mind, for she was the very woman that Proverbs seven talks about. And Solomon took time to warn his sons about her. He says, So listen to me, my sons, and pay attention to my words. Do not let your heart stray away from her. Don't wander down her wayward path, for she has been the ruin of many. Many men have been her victims. Her house is on the road to the grave, her bedroom is the den of death. And how many marriages had she split up? How many men had she led with her lustful looks and her illicit. Words, her deceitful kisses down the path of destruction put him on the road to hell. But beautifully, here's the last thing she heard and we know according to Matthew, the chronology of the gospel, this would be the last thing before verse 36. As, as Matthew gives us a little more of the sermon that Jesus is preaching, here, here think of this, the state of her heart. And hear this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And she responds. She's got to get to Jesus. And the Pharisee responds, and he's got to have Jesus in. And so we see in verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, it wasn't unusual, history tells us, for uh, this banquet, which was probably a Sabbath banquet. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a big deal, and Jesus would be a person of note. It was popular to have him in. It would be the kind of banquet that you would lay down at. You would be sitting at a low table, propped up with your left arm, and eat with your right and your, your feet. Your legs would stretch backwards to the wall. But it was a kind of an open inven- uh, event. And so people uh, would be walking by, and some people would just sit on the wall and look through the windows or sit on the window sills and just listen uh, to the conversation because they wanted to engage. It was a popular place for begging uh, because, you know, you go up to the host and you're like, wow, I'm really hungry. And, you know, now there's some pressure on the host in front of uh, the guy he's invited to, you know, be generous. And so it was kind of a jackpot, kind of like people who beg in front of ATMs. You know, you're like, oh, I, don't ha- I guess I do have some money. Here you go. Uh, <laughs> And so, and so that's kind of the scene, what's going on. But women weren't invited. That's what is uh, uh, not uh, happening here. They weren't invited to the banquets, especially this woman. And you can imagine how electrified the room got as she walked in. He knows her. And you can imagine the panic in his heart as he goes, oh, no. Is, is he going to think, why is she here what is she, oh, the association, oh. You know, and all of a sudden, but then she takes her place uh, behind uh, Jesus. And so, uh, notice uh, what happens. And standing behind him, verse 38, uh, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So she walks into the room. She stands behind Jesus and uh, you would remove your sandals and so she notices his sandals are removed but here she goes to anoint his feet with this costly ointment. She realizes he hasn't had his feet washed. See, Simon it didn't have to do that. It was a common courtesy to extend to a guest, but it wasn't required or anything. I mean, Simon had him into his home. He's feeding him, kind of a thing. But here his feet are caked with the dust and the mud of his travels. And all of a sudden, something overwhelms her. Something takes her. Maybe it's what he had said, but she begins to weep. And this isn't a sniffle. This literally, it means showers of rain. She begins to cry, and her tears and her eyes become a pitcher, and her hair becomes a towel, and she begins to wash Jesus' feet so that she can anoint them over and over. She's crying and she's washing and she's down there and she's cleaning them. And then she's going to take this ointment and she's going to anoint Jesus' feet with it. It wasn't the common olive oil uh, mixed with a spice that you would anoint the head if you came into a house that was customary, this is precious ointment. This is worth a lot. But I think we missed something in thinking that what she did was just uh, to show the value here. It was something far greater and far more meaningful uh, for her. The alabaster flask was often worn around the neck. It wasn't a big jar. It was a, a small thing with precious, precious uh, ointment inside, and it had a small, fragile neck you couldn't pour it out but you would have to break it to to use it but but enough of the smell came out of it that it would perfume the air around you and uh, where uh, women who had enough to wear those kind of things would do it uh, this was uh, notably a tool of her trade as even we read in proverbs the scent the allurement the attraction the beauty And in a day and age where hygiene, uh, you couldn't always uh, take care of hygiene and stuff like that, it also killed the smell of what had just happened, being in somebody else's arms. So not only was it an an allurement factor to draw you in, but it was also to cover the shame of what just uh, went on. So, something far more grand as she comes, and she takes this what she 's doing is this is her livelihood, and she smashes it at his feet. she says no more i 'm yours and then and then something that was scandalous but surely the the people in the room would be gasping as she takes her hair and lets it down and uh, the rabbi said that was grounds for divorce. It was, it was something private, something between a husband and a wife. You were to keep your hair up, it was a shameful thing. But why is she doing that? What she's doing is she's saying, I'm yours, I, I, I have nothing, uh, uh, no shame. You, you have everything. There, I, I'm yours, I'm giving all of myself to you. I'm giving the, the precious ointment, my trade, everything, my whole life, who I am, my hopes, my dreams, uh, uh, my future. It's in your hands, it's at your feet. I lay it before you. Very beautiful. Very beautiful. But notice Simon's response in verse 39. Now, the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. See, in that day, there began to be this idea that the heart of God was one of separation to stay away, God's good, you're good, stay away from the unclean, anything that will taint your purity and keep, keep back from that. In fact, it gives us some insight to the story in Luke 5 of the leper. And the leper comes, it's very interesting, and he comes for healing from Jesus. But he asked him an interesting question. It wasn't, I don't know if you're uh, able to do this, but he believed that God had power. He said, I know you can do this. I know you have power to cleanse me. I know that you could, in a moment, in a second, that this leprosy that's tearing my body, Apart, you can restore it. I, I know that you're able. What I don't know is if you're willing. See, in that day again, the religious thought that they scored points with God by taking rocks that were by their feet, throwing them at the lepers to keep them at a distance. They looked and they're like, We are your purity protectors. And so he goes, I don't even know anymore. I know, I know God can heal me. I don't even know if he wants me. And Jesus grabs him, it says, and says. he says, I am willing. And the leprosy flees like darkness when the sun hits it coming over the mountain. And he's restored and healed. An illustration I love by uh, Pastor Matt Chandler is he says he was at a purity conference with a girl who had an illicit past and, He's there and and, and the the speaker, he gets up before he speaks and he pulls out this rose and it's this beautiful long stem rose and it's Got all its petals, it smells wonderful. And he, he begins to pass it around through the crowd. And you know, he says, smell it. And, and as it's going through the crowd, he gives his speech. And then at the end, as he's wrapping up, he asks for the flower back up on stage. And by this time, it's been passed through so many hands that there's no petals left. Maybe one that's broken in half. There's no leaves. It's lost any uh, a beauty in its scent. And he holds it up over the crowd. And he says, who would want something like this? Well, the girl just sank next to him. His response is perfect. He says, Jesus, that's what he came for. I came to seek and save the lost. And I have to go as the good shepherd and leave the 99 to find the one. I'll go high and low until it's done to bring him back into the fold. You see, those who aren't sick, they don't need a f- physician, but I've come for the sick. He doesn't understand the heart of God. He thinks that we're, we're good, Jesus. We're on the same team, and yet Jesus is going to tell him through by, by way of parable. And notice what he says. He says, and Jesus answering, and I love he answers his mind, his thoughts. I don't watch out for Jesus. And he said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, well, go ahead and say it, teacher. Yeah, another trap. Doesn't always end good for you. Uh, he says, and this is interesting because he's going to give him this parable and, it, and some of the purpose behind it is to humble Simon, because really it's a simple parable. It's Sesame Street level. He's like five hundred fifty. Which one? Which one has more? And uh, but but it, notice he says he says a certain money lender had verse forty one had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii, and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Uh, Simon answered, uh, the one I suppose, and he's begrudging in the tense in the Greek, he's, you know, got to say it because it's so obvious, the the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly, good job. And now, what is Jesus doing here? Is he saying that there's people in this room today, in this room right here, uh, who it's very obvious that you are in the 500 group? You owe a debt 500 strong, and boy, we're glad together with you that Jesus died for you. Uh, yeah, and, but then there's some uh, in the group, and you know, there's a couple Mars on the record. You know, uh, yeah, I got a couple things, and so, but it's more 50. And so some of us need a lot of forgiveness. Some of us need, need a little forgiveness. Is, is, is that what he's saying? That's not what he's saying at all, because notice that they were both debtors, and they both could not pay. They both were going to prison in the same prison. They both were on their way. The same cell door was going to slam behind them and keep them there until they paid their debt off. They were going to prison there in the exact same condition. What Jesus is getting at, he's saying, but one knows it more than the other. One is more aware of it. It's more obvious to them. The, co- the creditors are calling night and day on the one. It's more obvious. Sometimes I'm in the ER and uh, if you've ever been to the ER, uh, you know, you get there, you wait a couple hours and, you know, you want to go in and see the doctor and, and then somebody comes in after you and, and there's no visible sign of marring, Right? So you're, and then they get up and they go in and they see the doctor before you. And you're like, what in the world? You know, I was here and it didn't even look at what he got, a side ache or something. And then you find out the guy like dies. Oh, hospitals aren't like that here. Okay. Uh. (laughs) You don't have taco trucks by your hospital? No, anyways. Uh, But anyways, But then, you know, somebody comes in, uh, and they've been in a car accident, like the limbs hanging by a thread, and they're bleeding, you know, out of their eyes, that was gruesome. But, you know, something, and... And you're like, please, after you, you obviously need the doctor. And so where one is a parent, there's the same condition going on. And and notice what Jesus says in light of that. Then turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet there. The word is to kiss over and over and over like the father when he kisses the prodigal. Repeatedly. And so he says, You did not anoint my head with oil. That's the olive oil variety, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, and she loves much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven the assurance that he provides her, that lavish display of love, a response, the repentance and breaking and bringing everything that she is to him. It was a response to the gospel. It was a response to what God had given her, the debt that he forgiven her. Now now notice that the crowd isn't dumb. And so in verse 48, or 49, that those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And they say, Jesus, there's a flaw in your story. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Great. Sounds great on the surface. Two debtors, one owes a lot, one owes a little. And then the debtor, you know, because they're all so nice. Just happens to just forgive it, cancel it, got it. They see, that can't happen. It doesn't happen in our day-to-day life. We've had people indebted to us. We've loaned people something. And if I was ever to cancel something, if I was ever to say, you don't have to pay it, it means that I have to pay it. And I think there's such a weight to the word Her sins, which were many, as the cross all through this narrative looms over in the shadow of it. For 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, and God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That on the cross, very mindful that he can say to this woman, your sins are forgiven, your debt is cleared, because that debt would be put on him instead. He would take the hit. He would absorb the cross. And you see, she understood it was apparent through the scars and the tragedy and through the tears of, of her debt that she'd incurred. But Jesus is pleading with Simon and says, you're just as guilty if you only knew where you stand with me before a holy God, that every time you fail to obey in your heart by your motives, me, That when you've looked after a woman and lusted her, maybe you didn't do the external act. But it's sin in the heart. That when you hated somebody, you've murdered them in your heart, the internal motivations of the heart, that's what I'm after. And where do you stand when those are analyzed? The heart is deceitfully above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? I, the Lord, know it and I see it all. For from the time that we're born into sin, it's measured and we're storing up wrath for the day of judgment. The wages of sin is death. And every time that we failed to keep the law or rebelled against him, either the negative or the positive, knowing what was right to do and not doing it, it adds to the debt. It adds to the debt. It adds to the debt. And we cannot even believe or can't even conceive of it. some of us love Jesus little because we think he died for a dozen things. For from the time you were conceived in your mother's womb in sin, it was all laid upon his shoulders as the Lamb of God and the holy justice and judgment, not vindictive, but legal wrath of God fell upon Jesus and he was crushed. He was the outcast so that you could be brought in, so that as he cried out from the cross, as he bore your and my hell and the full extent of our rebellion against him, it is finished to tell us that paid in full. Jesus says, The heart that sees that loves much. When they realize that they're great sinners but I'm a great savior that I came to seek and save that which was lost. Oh, Simon, humble yourself. Let me redeem you and rescue you. I formed you in your mother's womb. Don't harden yourself to me. He says, Simon, what you think she's done is extraordinary. You think it's crazy. You think it's this lavish expression of devotion. It's insane. It's out of proportion. See, Simon, you've brought me into your house, but that's all you've given me access to. You've brought me into the dining room, but you haven't let me come in. You've fed me dinner, but you haven't given me your life. You still maintain control. Maybe you're seeking spiritual things, Simon. You want some enlightenment, some good you know, lesson, some further insight, some way that I can help you, give you some keys to better your life here where she's given me everything. What you think is crazy, if you understood where you stood before a holy God and what this holy God has done to redeem you, you would be on your feet too. You'd be weeping too. You'd give everything that you had too. You'd give everything, your hopes and your dreams. You lay it at my feet. What you say is outlandish as normal. That's how great the salvation is. Paul, when the Corinthians were asking him, how can you be so crazy for Jesus? How can you endure so much, live such? Amazing life for God. He tells them in 2 Corinthians 5. Because the love of God compels me. I sit and I saturate my heart in the gospel. That I was out and he brought me in. And I persecuted his bride. And he made me his bride. That he, the same love that the father loves the son with, he shares with me and all that belongs to Jesus, he shares with us. You ask me how? The love of God compels me. I'm overwhelmed by it until it affects everything that I do. Peter thought it very important because some of us in here maybe go, great, I love salvation. I remember that experience. But Peter seems to think it important that we're constantly and everything that's beautiful and all the maturity would flow out of this place. In 2 Peter, verse 1, 3 to 8, I'll read it. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. And in view of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises, supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this, if this isn't happening, this fruit isn't coming out of your life, are short-sighted, are blind, forgetting that you have been cleansed from your sins. And so he goes on in that chapter and he says, so I will, till I die, stir you up by reminding you of the gospel. That everything would flow out of that love. Don't you understand that if there's little love in your life, little love for service, little love for the coastlands, little love for your family, little love for the Savior himself. It's because you've forgotten, somehow you've partnered or something in your salvation or in the process, okay, God, I'll take it from here. The heart has grown cold, all that we would stay at the feet of Jesus, at the foot of the cross and wonder at the glory of his redemption. So what do we do? Who are we in this story? And Man, I want to be the woman. (sighs) Everything given to him. So often I find my attitudes like Simon. I look down on others. I think I've figured it out. Or I don't need this. What do we do? Do we try harder? going through Galatians, so you know that's not the answer. There's a beautiful book into this story, and I'll close. It's in Luke chapter 14, and it's also at a religious leader's house. They invite Jesus again for a meal, and there's this man, and he's full of dropsy, and what dropsy was, it made you unclean, but it was, it swole uh, you up until you were disfigured, he was never invited to the synagogue. We're not allowed in. He was never invited to banquets like this, and so to his shock, and to his surprise, and probably his joy, he gets invited in only to find out that he is bait. Bait. All his life has been one of pushing back and rejection, and here he is by his, his, his spiritual leaders, and he's going to be used as bait to try to trap Jesus. Will he heal on the Sabbath? So there he is standing. You can imagine him hiding in his cloak, his disfigurement as he begins to back away as he realizes the scene before him. And yet Jesus does something and the Greek is so strong and cool. says that he goes up and he seizes him. Literally the word is arrest. So here's what happens. This disfigured man, as he looks at the religious leaders, he wraps his arms around him. All of that disfigurement, all of that swollenness fades away in the arms of Christ. That's what I call you to today. Hearts go this way and that way. They get disfigured on this. They elevate this. They require this in in addition to Jesus for satisfaction in this life. They're swollen in a hundred different directions. And so it's not try harder. It's get into the arms of Jesus today. Amen. There'll be others on the right and on the left because some of us are in here and we're like, I can't even get myself to Jesus. And we'd love to be the friends who carried the lame man uh, to Jesus. We'd love to put your hand in the hand of Jesus, however we can serve you. Uh, we love you guys. Jesus, thank you. I pray that we would know your love, that we would feel your kisses upon our neck, that we would hear the Spirit of God, even as we worship and praise you. As Romans 8 says, the Spirit of God crying out, Abba, Father, Daddy, that we are sons, we are daughters, we've been adopted, we've been brought in because you were disfigured in our place. You have made us whole because you were thrust out. So God, I pray that you would do such a work that, Lord, we would be overwhelmed by your love and that it would flow out to the coastlands and that everybody would be uh, affected uh, because of your love, that it would compel us. So keep us at your feet. Let us not get distracted. Let us choose the uh, the better part like Mary and let us worship and adore you now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.